Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. If you have a Bible handy, please open it up to Romans chapter 12. We are going to be starting in the third verse. But a quick recap, as always. St. Paul just got done spending three chapters, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, explaining the new situation. And the people of God, God's chosen people, is the church. The church is his Israel. It is always comprised of people that believed in the true God, that trusted in him. However, there was a different form of Israel before Christ went to the cross. And now something has changed. Gentiles are just let in by faith instead of the long process of proselytization, instead of having to be circumcised, born in Israel, etc., and so forth. Now the church is predominantly Gentiles, as the unbelieving Jews, those who did not accept Christ, were broken off from Israel. But that leads to a question. How do you live as part of this Israel? How do you function? Is it like any other country? Do we get together and have a proposition nation before uh, America is established 1700 some odd years later? Not quite. Is the Christian church a country or is it a different kind of body? That's where St. Paul here is spending so much time in Romans 12 talking about how we treat one another, how we love one another, how the church functions in individual believers interacting with one another, how the church acts corporately, etc. But that's after his first two verses, and that's all we were able to cover last week, where he establishes the motivation for this. He gives us a pietistic, frankly, motivation and outlook that we need in order to do our best to please God. But corporately, as we get through verses 3 through 8 today, it does look like a lot of cooperation. Remember, the believer does not exist in a vacuum. Instead, the believer exists as part of the body of Christ. That's what he inhabits. So let's go ahead and start reading in Romans chapter 12, beginning in the third verse. Four. And we stop right there. What is the for? For. A lot of times we see therefore and we say, what is the therefore? Therefore? I'm sure you've heard that a million times from your pastor when he goes through the Bible. But it is still going to apply to statements like for. And that for is on the basis of verses 1 and 2. So let's reread 1 and 2 just to make sure we understand it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, this therefore being about chapters 9 through 11, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, having a spiritual worship in which we are motivated to say, God is for me, therefore I am for God. Do not be conformed to this world, not having the world's motivations, not living like the world does, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So on the basis of this motivation, then, he says in verse 3, 
For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, with prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Typically, for most churches in evangelical world, this ends up being your little personality test, your resume as a Christian. Unfortunately, this passage needs to be looked at a little bit deeper. So let's restart here. We're going to go verse by verse and look at verse 3. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does he mean by all this? Well, first, the grace given to me. St. Paul is writing as an apostle. He's writing Bible. He's had this as a revelation from the Holy Spirit himself in order to give this pronouncement to us. How must we live? How should we think in the midst of that? That's the grace given to him. He starts off talking about his own spiritual gift, in passing, of course. But what is the word for grace? It is caritas, where we get the word charity from. It is something given to you without any merit of your own. St. Paul, with just these few words here, by the grace given to me, he is saying, this isn't him as just St. Paul talking. This is something God has given him in order to fulfill a spiritual mission. He did not earn the title of apostle. He did not earn his ability to write things that are binding upon all Christians for our sake. No, this isn't about him. It is about what God does for him in order for God to do it for us. And thus he says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. How interesting that St. Paul first does not think of himself very highly. He says, this is the grace given to me. This isn't me being super special apostle man. This is something that comes from God. So everybody ought to have that same attitude. Don't think of yourself more highly. Now, he says to think with sober judgment, though, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So when he says to think with sober judgment, sober itself control, it's awareness. It is not just, oh, I suck. I need humility. It should be noted that the contrast is between thinking of yourself too highly, too arrogantly, versus thinking of everything with sober judgment, sobriety, self-control. Somebody who is arrogant or high-minded of themselves 
is basically drunk. <laughs> they are unable to make a right decision, or at least it's unlikely that they'll make a right decision, because a motivator for everything they do is going to be this their ego is going to keep them from making the right call. Now, if we relate this, though, to the graces St. Paul is talking about here, sober thinking is going to say, I don't have this gift because I'm so special. I do not merit this. Therefore, I'm not too good for anything. I need to serve God with humility and with an accurate understanding. Now, when St. Paul does say, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, I want you to think about it not in terms of faith being like water, where you have a cup with a little bit of water, then you have a cup with more water, and then you have a cup with a lot of water, and it's overfilling, and the guy with a lot of faith water in his cup, that dude's like super gifted, man. Not really. Faith receives the sacraments. Faith receives God's grace. So while salvation, as I've said before, is monergistic, God is the only actor in salvation, he also deposits a measure of faith that receives a specific gift, a specific grace that is given unto you. It's not, as some Pentecostals and some in the Arminian camp have uh, been falsely led to believe, like, oh yeah, I need to charge up my faith crystal. I need to get so much more faith. Jesus says faith is a mustard seed. I want faith as a whole bushel of wheat. I want faith like a palm tree because that's bigger than a mustard seed. I want so much faith. Well, no, faith is either something you have or something you do not have. And when God gives you faith in him, when he brings you to understanding the truth of the gospel and you respond with, yes, sir, amen, I want to be part of your church, you are also going to be given a specific faith for receiving his grace, the Holy Spirit's gifts to you. And this is going to be different from person to person what that looks like, how that manifests in the individual believer. So St. Paul continues in verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. St. Paul will get into this comparison in more detail in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, you know, a hand isn't a foot. A hand isn't an eye. We don't all have the same function in Christ's body here on earth. Some people have noticed and compared this to some Roman writings where they claim that the Roman Empire is the body of the emperor, so to speak. And they believe that St. Paul is making something of a political statement. Maybe. We got to Keep in mind here, St. Paul, in context, having just written three chapters on how the church is Israel, it does make sense that he would make such an analogy. Christ is our king. He is like the emperor in Rome, and that is something that the Roman citizen attending the church in Rome would understand. But I don't want to latch on to that analogy too, too closely. The kingdom of God is not 
political. It's supra-political. It is over politics. It is above politics. The Christian church should influence politics, not the other way around. And it is a terribly sad thing whenever we see church bodies and denominations allow the politics of the secular world outside influence them instead of the other way around. We have to keep in mind that Christ is really the ruler of absolutely everything. So the church, in service to Christ, the church operating as the body of Christ here on earth, should not submit to earthly rulers insofar as it touches doctrine and practice within the body. Far too many church bodies just up and changed all their doctrine because the winds of culture and politics on earth were changing and they adapted to it. Because they're acting as though the church is fundamentally a political body instead of a supra-political body. That's one of the greatest shames in the church history, my goodness. Especially in the 20th and 21st century where churches just out and out betrayed Christ. Oh, the world says this doctrine needs to be like this. So we're going to have a secret justification. We're going to warp the Bible and our understanding of the Bible to conform to that. When St. Paul just told us in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the world. And we did that. <laughs> Unfortunately, so many churches, especially Lutheran ones, decided that they had to act like the world. They had to get accolades from the world. They had to get applause from worldly people with their worldly political ideas. Does your church support gay marriage? Did it support gay marriage 40 years ago? Did it support ordaining women 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, all the way back to the 70s when a whole bunch of Lutheran church bodies just decided that that's what we're going to do now because the world is telling us we need to be heckin' feminists. That's the church conforming to the world, corporately. It's apostasy. But here, St. Paul tells us with the one-body analogy, you are part of Christ's body here on earth. God comes First. Now, you might have individual political beliefs in one stripe or another, but faith has to come first. God has to be first in your mind, your first priority, faithfulness to him. Let your faith influence your politics, not the other way around. With this analogy that, again, I'll give it to some of these commenters, it does sound a lot like these Roman-type analogies between the emperor and the empire, sure. But with St. Paul saying you are part of Christ's body, he says that you belong to a higher authority than the world, and you serve that higher authority with the gifts that are given to you. And he'll get to how this interacts with worldly politics in Romans 13, anger arc number two, when we get into this. I can't wait to get the angry emails on that one. But he's essentially saying you are a member of a kingdom, a kingdom that goes above the material kingdom that you live in. And you're going to have different functions, so let's get into those functions which are given to us by God's grace.
He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So each one of us is going to have a different gift according to a different specific kind of grace. Something we do not earn, we have to be humble about it. We have to be sober about it and say, okay, God has given me this gift and now God is for me, so I am going to be for God. I'm going to use the gift he has given me in order to serve him, to love God above all and love my neighbor as myself. And now, St. Paul is going to give us a few examples. It's not an exhaustive list of the gifts of the Spirit, but it's some examples here. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So because this is not an exhaustive list, it doesn't include glossolalia, it doesn't include, uh, well, the apostolic mission or anything like that, we do benefit from seeing these all as having the same rubric. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, well, the guy who serves should also be serving in proportion to his faith. Now, prophecy, of course, being speaking on behalf of God, knowing the Bible so well these days that you can actually apply the scriptures to people's lives and give them good advice or preaching the gospel. Maybe it includes foretelling in accordance with biblical precedent, but that shouldn't be the main focus of prophecy. Anyway, we continue, though, service in our serving. Well, every single one of these gifts that he gives us here that he's talking about is a kind of service. So if you have a spiritual gift of prophecy, you serve the body of Christ. If you are teaching, you are serving the body of Christ with your teaching. But service here can be anything from being the guy that helps set up the altar on Sunday morning before church to uh, being the dude that goes out and helps one of the little old ladies in the church with moving furniture in her house. And you should be seeing that as your service to the church. Uh, the one who teaches in his teaching. But everybody here that serves in accordance with the gift that God has given them does teach as something of a role model. We are called to be Christians who act in accordance with these gifts, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is to the exclusion of everything else. In the small catechism, we keep hearing about the head of household teaching these things to his family, reading the catechism together or going over catechism topics. Because fathers do serve as like the priest of their family, of their household. That's a part of the job as father. We all have these responsibilities, but you are going to be better at some things than others according to the grace that God gives you. And St. Paul is ultimately saying that if you have this gift from God, you need to use it like you mean it. You need to go ahead and actually employ it with zeal. In fact, I love that he says those who lead with zeal. Well, 
Are you supposed to not have Zell if you're somebody who contributes? Are you supposed to not have Zell if you're a servant or somebody who prophesies? <laughs> the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Well, uh, clearly then the prophet's got to be miserable. The server has to be angry. The one who teaches, he can't be happy. He's supposed to just feel emotionally blank. Nobody is allowed to be cheerful except the one who does acts of mercy. It's silly to think that, but if you imagine this to be a list of Christian superpowers given to you, like assigned at your conversion or something, to the exclusion of everything else, like a lot of evangelical churches do, then you're telling people that, well, you're not really supposed to be a full, active, living Christian. When in reality, no, you, you really are. And it's good to covet spiritual gifts, to ask God to make you a better and more active Christian that contributes to the body of Christ in various ways. Are you going to be good at one thing over another? Sure. It's kind of like the love languages that we get, right? Some people are going to be better at just being generous and giving, and other people are going to have a hard time not being strapped for cash. Some people have just too hardcore of a sense of justice to the point where they don't know how to show mercy to somebody, and it takes them a long time to talk about how somebody's sin is forgiven or to give godly comfort and counsel to somebody in need. But they should still seek to get a little bit better at that over time. That's a part of your sanctification. Now, all of these are supernatural. Why do I say that? Because there is an argument in big Protestantism between continuationism and cessationism. Continuationists believe that all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit persist, meaning we have glossolalia, we still have a kind of prophet that does tell the future and all of that. Cessationists believe, unfortunately, that all the quote-unquote sign gifts, the ones that have a wow factor, those just stopped once the canon of scripture was complete. No more prophecy, no more tongues, no more anything. Well, that's dumb. It is dumb for somebody to be a cessationist, especially if they are a Lutheran cessationist. <laughs> Whenever you go to church and you take communion, you are witnessing a miracle. It is not normal, nor is it natural, for bread and wine to suddenly have the presence of Christ's body and blood united to them. Whenever you witness somebody being baptized, you watch a sinner, even if a baby, a tiny little sinner, become a saint. That is supernatural. That's a miracle. There should be no such thing as a Lutheran cessationist. But they do really like to have this artificial split between the mundane gifts of the Holy Spirit and the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit. They just made up that distinction because... Some gifts look supernatural, and that makes us really uncomfortable. Somebody speaking in another tongue? <laughs> no. Somebody healing another person by laying their hands on them? <laughs> Doesn't happen anymore. These are people that want to be deists. 
They want to be moralistic deists that deny the supernatural because it makes the Christian church look bad on account of the excesses of Pentecostalism in charismatics. And oh yes, the continuationists do have their problems there. There are many charismatics and Pentecostals that have seen to it that in their enthusiasm, God within-ism, they can find God where God has not promised to be in the prophecies, in the tongues, in the Toronto quote-unquote blessing where people are rolling on the floors and having seizures and you're supposed to go, oh wow, this is so spiritual, oh my gosh, this proves that God exists. The cessationists fail to realize that any gift from the Holy Spirit is supernatural and is absolutely a massive thing that should wow you whenever you think about it. Just think about the spiritual gift of generosity. Humankind is awful at giving with real agape love. You take a person before they're a Christian and then you see them after a Christian and ask what they do with their money. Look at how when they did donate to charity before they were a Christian, they were probably giving to some very selfish causes. They were probably doing it to make themselves feel good if it was a good cause. They were trumpeting it everywhere. They were arrogant about it. They made sure you knew about how generous they were. But then they become a Christian. Oh my. Now they're donating way more. Now they're giving more. Hopefully to the... Uh, to the very Lutheran project. Uh, anybody with the spiritual gift of generosity, please uh, hit me up, very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com. <laughs> but I digress. You'll notice that when they do become a Christian, if God has given them the spiritual gift of generosity, then supernaturally they have an abundance. They might be a rich dude. They are giving and giving, and it is blessing everybody around them. That is just as miraculous as somebody speaking with the tongues of angels. I don't care about this artificial distinction. But at the same time, the continuationists, uh, in their more extreme forms, they seem to forget that we are living in the supernatural. You're like a fish that doesn't know what water is. But a lot of these Pentecostals seem to have this struggle with faith where they can't really believe in God unless they're seeing glitter come from the ceiling or something or people speaking in uh, gibberish. The main point of the spiritual gifts, as St. Paul is getting at with the body analogy, is for the function of the church and for the benefit one of another. It should be benefiting your sanctification as a Christian that other Christians are using their spiritual gifts, the specific graces given by the Holy Spirit, to help you, to get you further along in your walk with Christ. So the body functions, and as a supra-political body, thus influences the rest of the world and brings more people to the flock. But enough of that ranting. Um, you don't have to be a Pentecostal or a cessationist type. In fact, you could just be a Lutheran. Very Lutheran. And mean it when you employ your spiritual gifts with a humility that says, this is what God has done for me. I will therefore use it for him and for the benefit of my neighbors. All of the blessings that God gives us are primarily to be a blessing for other people in everything, not just subjective emotional experience. But we will get into how we treat one another and how we 
love one another, the point St. Paul is trying to make with these gifts, next week. Catch y'all then. Amen and amen.